Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. Are you concerned about the health of your brain? Do you want to get rid of brain fog and have superior clarity and focus? Well, I have a solution for you. And no, it's not caffeine or some sort of pill or powder. Rather, it's delicious chocolate fudge. I know that sounds crazy, but this isn't your average fudge. It's actually rich, chocolatey fudge that is jam-packed with five of the most beneficial mushroom species in existence when it comes to keeping a sharp and healthy brain. In fact, all of the mushrooms contain high amounts of essential nutrients, along with unique bioactive compounds that can promote the health of your brain while also supporting your heart and immune system. Rest assured, you cannot taste the mushrooms within this fudge whatsoever. Just a delicious, gooey, chocolatey taste without sugar or artificial sweeteners. I'm introducing you to my favorite brain health treat. It's called Mushroom Mind Boost from my friends over at Purality Health. Now, Purality Health utilizes something called MyCell liposomal technology, which delivers the nutrients of these brain-boosting mushrooms into your bloodstream, proven to be up to 800% more efficient. So if you want to say goodbye to forgetfulness and instead keep a sharp and healthy mind, Give Purality Health's Mushroom Mind Boost a try. It's backed by a 180-day money-back guarantee. That's six full months. And today, I have a 30% off coupon for you. Just visit PuralityHealth.com and use the coupon DRJ to access 30% off your purchase today. In today's podcast, I am being interviewed by Dr. Terry Walls. She is the best-selling author of The Walls Protocol. Her story is that she actually had progressive multiple sclerosis and was able to reverse that naturally using nutrition and lifestyle changes and following an autoimmune paleo protocol. And she had, she talks all about it in her great book. And she recently had a summit all about neuroimmune disease and she interviewed me for it. And we talked about advanced nutrition strategies. We talked a lot about mitochondrial health, intermittent fasting and how intermittent fasting, we talked about a little bit about the research on how it shuts down uh, the inflammatory pathways and autoimmunity and how it helps to support the gut, right? And the gut microbiome. And we talked about some of the best healing foods as well. So I know you guys are going to get a lot out of this podcast. And if you have not left us a five-star review, now is the time to do that. When you leave us a review, it helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this message. Just go down to Apple iTunes. You'll see where it says review. If you scroll down, leave a review in there, five-star review, and leave a comment. And I would love to read that on one of the future podcasts as well. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a part of our community. And let's go into the show. Welcome, David. I'm so glad that you agreed to uh, join me and be part of this uh, amazing summit. Um, So what I'd like to have you do is introduce yourself and explain uh, why you have this area of expertise. 
Yeah, well, thank you so much, Dr. Walls. And my name is Dr. David Jockers, Doctor of Natural Medicine. And yeah, you know, uh, growing up, I was uh, I was an athlete. My mom actually was training to become a naturopath. And along the way, you know, for me as an athlete, I was always thin. So I thought I had to eat six meals a day, 5,000 calories a day to maintain my weight. And that caught up to me in my early 20s. I was a personal trainer and I was doing that. I had to have a protein shake before I went to bed and then I'd wake up in the morning, had to have this big breakfast. And I thought this is something I had to do. And this is what all the uh, you know bodybuilding magazines ta taught mm -hmm. me. And uh, it caught up with me. I developed irritable bowel syndrome. And I went from about 170 pounds down to 140 pounds. I had orthostatic hypotension where I go from sitting to standing. I feel really, really dizzy. Um, and I realized, you know, my body was chronically inflamed and I came across some information that talked about a lower carb diet, which for me, I thought I was healthier than everybody around me. I was eating whole, whole grains. I was a lacto ovo vegetarian, you know, so I thought well, I was sounds so familiar, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I thought I was healthy, but, uh, you know, that diet wasn't working for me. And so, um, Dr. Mercola, he was a website that I started looking at and, uh, he had a no grain diet and I thought, Oh, interesting. So I took that out. I started buying, I started ordering grass-fed meats and things like that. And um, it dramatically transformed my life. And I started, you know, I started gaining my weight back, got my energy back. But, you know, I noticed that I was very, very satiated. And I was in graduate school at the time. And I noticed I had 7 a.m. classes. And I noticed that I was very, very um, satiated oftentimes and didn't, didn't have as much hunger and I felt better when I was in a fasted state. And I had never heard anybody talk about intermittent fasting or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I was in a natural health college. So I had heard of, you know, extended fasting and things like that. But there was never, there wasn't this kind of idea of intermittent fasting. And I just knew that I, I personally felt better when I wasn't eating food in the morning and I would just drink a ton of water. And I would start eating when I got hungry, which is usually around two o'clock in the afternoon. And I would eat between, let's say, two o'clock and eight o'clock. And I felt better. I was getting stronger in the gym. I had more resilience. My immune system was better, less issues with my gut. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until years later that I realized, oh, this term intermittent fasting. I'm like, that's actually what I do. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so this is something that has definitely transformed my own health and something that I've taught other people and been really passionate about understanding the science of it. And in general, I'm just a performance biohacking type of uh nerd you know I'm, I'm all into that stuff and learning about things that i can do with my nutrition with my lifestyle to really optimize my overall health and uh, my performance okay so everyone who's listening uh we have a doctor of natural medicine uh and who has his own personal transformational story uh and actually i i love that david um certainly uh, that mirrors my experience uh, being a low-fat vegetarian, a great diet by traditional standards, but did not serve me well. Uh, and I think everyone who's listening, we have a diverse set of genes, a diverse set of microbiome. And so there may be a diverse number of diets that can be helpful for mm -hmm. humans at large, but is it helpful for you? Uh, that's a really uh, great question. And we're going to talk uh, about inflammation. We're going to talk about nutrition. So this is a common uh, uh, problem. Uh, we, we think we have a really great diet, but we discover that the diet that, as described, is a really fabulous diet is not serving us well. And I, I want 
to uh, go back to the question of inflammation. If we have multiple sclerosis or any of the neuroimmune conditions, so systemic autoimmune diseases often have neurologic or psychiatric symptoms, so that's a neuroimmune, neuroinflammation. What is inflammation and what's causing it? Yeah, so inflammation is a immune reaction in our body. And you see, our body was really hardwired for survival. And it has to look at you know, basically what, what are threats to survival? Well, a high toxic load. So if we ingest something that's extremely toxic to our body, we're breathing in, you know, carbon monoxide, you know, whatever it is, if we're in, if we're exposed to toxins, if we're exposed to high levels of pathogens, where the body senses that there's a lot of potential dangerous pathogens in our body by looking at endotoxins or actual live bacteria, live micro microorganisms in our blood, then the body has to react to that. Or if we're under you know tremendous uh, emotional stress or physical stress, because we know that throughout the history of mankind, more people have died from systemic infections than anything else. And what that means is that, you know, people would have a flesh wound or something like that. And these pathogens would get into the blood and they would spread throughout the body and they would get into the lungs, cause pneumonia, get into the brain, cause meningitis, whatever it is. And so the body is adapted to create this inflammatory process to help protect against dying quickly from an infection. So if we're under some sort of emotional stress, the body associates that. Like when our ancestors were under emotional stress, there was risk of injury. There was risk of some sort of a, a wound that, that could take place that could potentially cause pathogens to get into their bloodstream, right? And cause mm -hmm. this sort of this sort of death. And same thing with toxins. And so the body reacts with this inflammatory process and this inflammatory storm. And it's a healing process and it's a it's a normal natural process. The issue is that it's meant to be short-term. So that if we have trauma, if we have injury. Uh, the, the inflammatory process is part of the healing process should be short term. And then once, you know, the, the triggers for it, once the, the, the trauma is under control, the healing is uh, initiated, that inflammatory process should slow down and eventually stop. In our society, we keep provoking it. In a sense, we keep pouring gasoline on the fire. And so now we end up with this kind of low-level chronic inflammation that uh, eats up, you know, all of our different tissues and, you know, obviously can excite the immune system into an autoimmune type reaction and a neuroinflammatory autoimmune type reaction like you're talking about here on this summit. Okay. So the the root causes, we, we've sort of gone over how inflammation is protective, but if it persists too long, then it becomes maladaptive. And that's what's going on when we have multiple sclerosis. Uh, and that's what's going on if you have these other systemic autoimmune diseases. Uh, so it's it's now become pathologic. How do we measure it? Because yeah. uh, I'm thinking of mm -hmm. MS. Normally, you know, I go see my neurologist, he orders periodic uh, MRI surveillance, and he either tells me I've got new lesions or that everything is quiet. Are there any other ways that people with MS or any of the other neuroimmune conditions can figure out, is their inflammation still active? Yeah, for sure. And there's some some normal blood labs that you can ask your doctor to run if they're not already running. And these are typically covered by insurance. Some of them are, for for example, high sensitivity C-reactive protein. We know C-reactive protein is part of the immune system and it elevates when um, there's inflammation in the system. And so we always want to see mm -hmm. that under one Okay. Ideally under one. Now, if you're dealing with, if you've had an autoimmune condition, 
uh, oftentimes it may be like really high. I mean, it may be yeah. 20, 30, things like that. And so if you're seeing it reduce with, you know, every three months or whatever, whenever you're getting your blood work done and you're following a healthy lifestyle, like Dr. Walls recommends, that's good, right? We want to see it reducing, ideally getting it under one. There's also something called the erythrocyte sedimentation rate or ESR, which is mm -hmm. looking at basically how blood is clumping, right? And if it's very, very clumpy and thick, Okay, that's a sign of inflammation. And so we want to see that, you know, the blood isn't thick, that it's thin, that it's not super viscous. And we can also look at fibrinogen as well with that. You know, that's another good marker looking at basically the viscosity of the blood. So again, when we are inflamed, we tend to get more viscous blood that's more prone to clotting as well. Does that make people uh, higher risk for stroke? Absolutely. Yeah, for okay. sure it does. Yes, so, definitely. And those are early markers that we could look at that could indicate, you know, that that could tell you that you may be more predisposed to something like a stroke, a heart attack, yeah. or that you just have autoimmunity in general, right? That um, That's driving up inflammation. So for sure, homocysteine is another really good marker, you know, talking about stroke and uh, inflammatory activity in our blood vessels. Homocysteine is a really good marker, and that is a breakdown product of an amino acid, methionine, and it's a normal metabolic byproduct. So we're always going to have some, but we want to keep it in kind of this, uh, this you know, this optimal zone, and which and typically what, tends to be- What's an optimal zone? Optimal zone, and it depends on who you ask. Uh, I always like it for sure under nine, and a lot of practitioners like to see it under seven. Okay, mm -hmm. based on some of the latest research that's out there. And it when it's when it when we have the right nutrients, particularly B vitamins play a role in this, vitamin B2, vitamin B9, so that's folate, vitamin B12, B6 plays a role in zinc and magnesium. When we have sufficient levels there, we convert homocysteine into glutathione and also into SAME which are kind of universal, that's a universal methyl donor that helps with the production of serotonin, all of our different neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. And glutathione is our master antioxidant that helps keep our immune system under control. So we need, to, we need to create those. And if we have those right nutrients on board, then we're gonna have you know more optimal levels of homocysteine. And some people more genetically need a little bit more of those key nutrients for mm -hmm. that metabolism. And they may see homocysteine high. But the thing about homocysteine is, and I'm sure you've seen this on labs as well, I've seen people that they don't complain of any major symptoms, like they think that they're feeling fine, and then you'll you'll do a you know a blood test on them, and their homocysteine is 12, right? And that's 12 high risk. or 20, or I've seen 60. Like, oh my know, goodness, wow. Uh, yeah. That person's really at risk. Uh, and yeah. everyone who's listening, there is increased recognition that high homocysteine, uh, we've known for some time, higher risk of heart disease, but it's also seen people with MS have higher homocysteines. People with other neuroimmune conditions have higher homocysteine. And so I'll come back. What are uh, some of the foods that would be rich in B vitamins that you mm. are uh, encouraging your folks to consume? For sure. So when I'm thinking about uh, folate and when I'm thinking about vitamin B2 and I'm thinking about B12, uh, some really good ones, organ meats in general. So like beef liver, right? Or grass-fed beef liver is a great one. For folate, also dark green leafy vegetables are a great source of folate. Vitamin B12, you're going to get from your animal products. So we talked about the organ meats, but also, you know, just grass-fed beef in general, bison, all of your 
-hmm. you know, red meat typically is higher in B12 than your whiter meat, right? But you can get some from poultry, you can get some from eggs, from fish as well. So you can get your B12 there, but red meat's typically going to be higher in that. And so those are going to be key. Those are also high in zinc, high in choline, Mm -hmm. which is also critical for methylation and metabolizing homocysteine more effectively. So those are going to be the best things. So you know, dark green leafies, getting your your salad, a steak salad, right? It's a great way to get a lot of those nutrients yeah. in there. Okay. Now let's talk about blood sugar. Do you have thoughts about uh, what's the role of your glucose metabolism uh, in inflammation? Yeah. So our body is very sensitive to where the blood sugar is, where glucose is. We should have about a teaspoon of sugar circulating in our bloodstream at any given time. We measure that in our blood glucose measurements. and uh, when our when our blood sugar goes gets up, it's elevated. We call that hyperglycemia, and these glucose molecules will actually bind to proteins in our bloodstream and create something called an advanced glycation end product or an AGE. And these AGEs are sticky proteins that are highly reactive, and they particularly are reactive with the endothelial lining of the blood vessels, and so. They create massive oxidative stress and they drive up inflammatory activity. The oxidative stress creates the tissue damage and then inflammation comes in to try to heal the the endothelial lining, ends up causing a plaque formation, right? A scar tissue in a sense. And so it also damages the kidneys. I mean, you think about somebody with uncontrolled diabetes, they have hyperglycemia. So they end up damaging their nerves, right? And they end up with peripheral neuropathy or optic neuritis where they lose their vision. They have kidney failure, heart failure. So they don't actually die from diabetes, from hyperglycemia. They die from the effect or the downstream effect of these advanced glycation end products and how they damage these major organ systems. And so very, very important that we keep blood sugar down, but we don't want it too low because then we get hypoglycemia and we don't have enough glucose to drive energy in our neurons. And so then the neurons start to die because they become malnourished in a sense or not able to produce energy. And that creates a cascade of inflammation. So very, very important that we keep blood sugar in a very tight regulated state. And the major hormone that's associated with that is insulin or insulin and glucagon would be the secondary hormone. Insulin's job is to take sugar out of the bloodstream. And like a key going into a door, it opens up the cell and we have a receptor on the cell called the insulin receptor. So it, the insulin's the key, goes in the receptor, opens the door, allows glucose, as well as other nutrients like magnesium to get into the cell where we can now produce cellular energy. And that's really key that we're, we have a sensitive function. What happens is in our society, when we're eating all the time and we're eating higher glycemic foods or higher carbohydrate foods, we end up creating higher blood sugar and a higher need for insulin. And over time, the cells become less sensitive, less responsive to the insulin. And so we have higher and higher loads of insulin. And insulin is a pro-inflammatory, when it's elevated in our bloodstream, it's a Mm pro-inflammatory fat storage hormone, meaning that it stops our ability. When insulin is elevated above a certain threshold, we're not going to be able to burn fat for fuel. And that's key because that reduces our metabolic flexibility and puts us in this mode where we can only really burn sugar as an energy source. And sugar is an important energy source, glucose. However, if we're primarily only burning glucose, we produce a lot more oxidative stress. And oxidative stress creates more damage within the cell, more damage in the mitochondria, 
and drives up more inflammatory activity also inside of our cell will cause a reduced function or a dysfunction in the mitochondria. We call that mitochondrial dysfunction, or in a sense, these mitochondria start to age faster and then mm -hmm. they become, you know, again, less functional. And we call that senescent, like mitochondrial senescence, right? Where these mitochondria become aged and very poor at actually burning fat for fuel. And so now we might even be able to get our insulin levels down to actually turn on fat burning, but our mitochondria that are in the cells are actually so dysfunctional that they can't burn fat themselves. And now these cells are reproducing, creating more new cells that have poor dysfunctional mitochondria. And then over time, you know, just we, we end up with, uh, with overall, you know, systemic lower function in our body and, uh, you know, and it causes significant issues. And so well, very, very important what, what that we we're do? keeping. What, yeah. Good well, question. Um, what do we do? So a uh, high blood sugar, high carb diet, uh, can lead to this insulin resistance, lots of downstream damage to our, to our brain, our nerves in our other important organs, uh, liver, kidneys, heart, lungs. Oh my goodness. Um, what, what do we, what should we, we be doing if we see that our blood sugars in insulin are creeping up? For sure. Well, first step is I always recommend reducing sugars and grains and, and certainly all the ultra processed foods, things that you have to like open a bag to eat. We want to reduce or even eliminate all of those types of foods. We also want to change the fats that we eat. We want to get rid of our processed vegetables slash seed oils. That's going to be things like canola oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, cottonseed oil, peanut oil, canola oil. Uh, we want to get rid of those things. They're very inflammatory. They end up driving up insulin resistance in the body. And we want to switch over to healthy fats. That's going to be your extra virgin olive oil, particularly like a fresh pressed high polyphenol, extra virgin olive oil, coconut oil, grass-fed butter, pasture-raised eggs, avocados or avocado oil. We want to consume those kinds of healthy fats. And then as much as possible, we want to change over our animal products from grain-fed, conventionally raised to grass-fed, pasture-raised because they have more nutrients and less toxins. And that should be our idea when it comes to nutrition. Mm -hmm. We want food that has minimal amount of toxins, so minimal amount of pesticides, herbicides, things that spike our blood sugar, processed seed oils, and maximal amount of nutrients, right? And so particularly real food-based nutrients. And so that's what we want to focus on. And then we build our meals. We want to make sure that we've got, I always recommend at least 30 grams of high quality protein, particularly animal-based protein in each meal, at least 30 grams. If you're doing a lot of strength training, uh, particularly if you're male and you're doing a lot of strength training, many more, 40, 50 uh, mm -hmm. grams of protein in a meal. Okay. You hang want... on, David. So people, as I'm looking at my plate, I, I can't convert that to grams yeah. of protein easily. So I like to uh, think about if I'm eating my meat, fish, poultry, and you know, I always have my hands on hand. Yeah. So how, how much of my hand should be devoted to the, the meat size? Should be about size? your whole hand, right? You should have a whole hand's worth in a day or uh, in a meal? In a meal, right? So roughly that whole hand's worth um, okay. is going to be good. And then you want to basically, you want colorful vegetables with it, right? And so you want lots of colors. So you're you're really building it around 
the healthy protein, you've got healthy fats in there and the fats could be coming just from the animal product itself and maybe a fatty piece of meat or something like that. Or you can add in extra virgin olive oil or which is high in polyphenols, super good for your body, avocado, mm. uh, grass-fed butter, things like that. And then you want lots of colorful vegetables and getting a, an array of different types of colors all of those things have something called polyphenols in them, which protect the plant from, ox from, uh, for example, UV rays, but also from natural predators. And the polyphenols confer benefits to our body and to our microbiome. They help us deal with UV stress, right? They help us deal with radiation. They help us quench oxidative stress in our body. They help to um, benefit our microbiome and create a more diverse and less inflammatory gut lining and, and, and microbiome uh, in general. And so we wanna make sure that we're getting colorful foods. We wanna make sure we're getting lots of protein, lots of healthy fats, should make you feel satiated, right? If you feel hungry okay. a few hours after your meal, that's a sign you Probably either ate something protein. your body was sensitive right. to, or you um, didn't eat enough protein or fat, right? It should really satiate you for at least four hours after you consume that meal. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you about this amazing product called Joint Support by Pure Health Research. If you're out there and you're struggling with stiff or aching joints, and you're tired of letting that discomfort steal the joy and freedom from your life, you've gotta try Joint Support. It contains seven of Mother Nature's best superfoods for supporting comfortable, healthy, and flexible joints, and it even promotes healthy cartilage growth too. Now, all it takes is one small capsule of joint support every day to start feeling the positive effects on your joint health. And as a listener of our show, you can try joint support risk-free today and get a free 30-day supply of omega-3 when you take advantage of this special offer. It can promote healthy joint lubrication, making it easier to move in comfort. You're also going to get two free ebooks so you can learn more about joint health. Just head over to getjointhelp.com forward slash jockers. That's getjointhelp.com forward slash jockers. G G E T J O I N T H E L P.com forward slash J O C K E R S. And now we'll order joint support and claim your free bottle of omega 3 while supplies last. Again, that's getjointhelp.com forward slash jockers. Okay, so satiation refers to just feeling uh, full, content, yeah. you, aren't, you aren't having hungry. Uh, and if I'm looking at my dinner plate, again, yeah. I, want, I want to make it visual so people can, can really see how to think about this. I have my dinner plate. I've got you know my green leafy vegetables, cooked greens, mushrooms, some asparagus, uh, maybe some beets. Well, we'll have a variety of, of vegetables. Mm -hmm. A third to half that plate should be my protein, uh, and the other, the rest should be uh, my vegetables. And I think what I'm hearing is that you'd rather have more non-starchy vegetables than starchy vegetables. Beets and That's carrots correct. are good, but we want to have the majority of those vegetables be non-starchy. Things like uh, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, spinach, a Swiss chard. Am I descri uh, describing things accurately? Okay, uh, yeah. and then what what I like to do, uh, particularly during the summer, I have all sorts of green herbs. I blend them, and, and depending on on you know, is it early in the summer or late in the summer? I blend them with my uh, cold pressed extra virgin olive oil, uh, uh, some uh, garlic, 
uh, in whatever green herb. So it might be uh, basil, oregano, uh, parsley, cilantro. And so I have this pesto and I place it over whatever uh, protein sources mm. I have. I uh, put it over my vegetables and I'll probably have two to four tablespoons of my pesto with every meal. So that's where I'm getting my fat. I'm getting a lot of um, green herbs with that. It tastes delicious. And if everyone who's listening, I encourage you to try uh, making your own pesto with uh, really nice olive oil, whatever uh, fresh herbs you can grow and put it over everything you eat. It is like, oh my goodness, so lovely. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that just makes me hungry even thinking about it just with all those different Mediterranean herbs, which are absolutely amazing for your body. We know olive oil has things like oleocanthal and hydroxytyrosol, which actually cross the blood brain barrier. And they're, in a sense, they're like nature's ibuprofen, right? Nature's Tylenol. They don't have the side effects, but they're really powerful at quenching inflammation, quenching pain, uh, and improving neurological function and helping to balance the immune system. All right. So we've we've designed a diet that we think uh, will certainly be very, very helpful for anyone whose uh, blood sugar is creeping upward. Uh, and uh, I, you're also, I, I know, very keen on intermittent fasting. So let's talk about how we can use this intermittent fasting to further reduce inflammation. For sure. Well, you know, one of the best ways to get insulin down right? And we talked about insulin resistance and the issue with that is to actually just not eat itself, right? So eating a lower carb, the kind of diet that Dr. Walls and I just talked about is, is key. That will bring insulin down, but also just taking time between meals actually helps bring insulin down. And so when we insulin goes under a certain threshold, our body starts burning fat for fuel and it starts undergoing a process of self-healing and self-repair. We call that process autophagy, which means self-eating, and the body says, you know what, I need amino acids, but we're not taking in any dietary amino acids because we're not eating. So what does it do? It says, oh, well, there's some amino acids here inside of our cells. And they're, you know, right now they're the structure of this mitochondria that's old and damaged and not functioning well. So you know what, I'm going to actually break that mitochondria down. And I'm going to take the raw materials, the amino acids, and I'm going to create a new healthier mitochondria. And we call that mitophagy. It's this process of breaking down the mitochondria, right? And we create a stronger, more stress-resilient mitochondria. Also, when we go periods of time between meals, the body says, I need to be more efficient at burning fat for fuel and creating cellular energy. So I actually need more mitochondria within my cells. And really the quality of your cellular health, right? The quality of your life is going to come down to the quality of your cellular, cellular health and the balance of your immune system. But then the quality of your cellular health really comes down to the amount of strong, stress-resilient, metabolically flexible mitochondria within your body. And so by going periods of time without eating, of course, we do need to eat, but taking some periods of time, whether it's 14, 16, 18 hours, maybe a day, 24 hours without eating, we increase the amount, we get rid of the bad, the dysfunctional mitochondria, and we increase the amount of strong, stress-resilient, metabolically flexible mitochondria, and that's going to increase your overall quality of life and help uh, keep inflammation under control in your system. Okay, listeners, um, what we're describing uh, is this intermittent uh, fasting that we're lengthening the time that we do not eat. Uh, and in my clinical practice, I have people do this very gradually at a pace that they can accommodate. So you 
eat your first meal of the day a little later in the day. You take your last meal of the day and move that a little earlier in the day. And you do this at a pace that works for you and your family. And over time, I have uh, people become very successful at either time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. I have some folks, and David, I'm going to be very curious on your opinion on this. Mm-hmm. They go to one meal a day, OMAD. Uh, and uh, they find that to be uh, super helpful. Yeah. Now I'm getting a little more sensitive. I'm, I'm, a, I'm the mature side of my life. I'm over the age of 65, so now I have to worry about sarcopenia yeah. uh, and loss of muscle mass. Um, so what what advice do you give to someone in my age group? Over 65, we have to worry about uh, muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And I also know that my mitochondria, my immune cells are getting more mature as well. So I'm worried about that senescence. Yeah. Um, what what would you be telling me if I was coming for to sure? You? And that's 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 a really great question. So what we want to do is we want to create a good balance between feasting in a sense and famine, where the body says, okay, we've got a lot of great nutrients, a lot of amino acids, nutrients on board for a period of time, and then periods of time where the body says, okay, wow, we don't have enough nutrients, so now we need to scavenge. We need to break down all these you know, damaged cells, burn fat for fuel. So we create a good balance between that. And of course, we also want to actually create mechanical load on the muscles and on the joints. So that way we create a stimulus that allows the body to say, I need this lean body tissue. And this is one of the things that a lot of older people, you know, just a lot of people in our society in general don't do is we're not actually we're not exercising. We're not doing strength training. And that's so critical. So we need the the load as well. Um, So doing strength training, resistance training three, four times a week, really, really beneficial, particularly compound exercises, things like squats, deadlifts. And I know that might sound intimidating to some of the listeners out there, but you know, you start small and you can get on YouTube and just kind of look at like, what does an air squat look like? What does a um, deadlift look like? You know, if you're still confused by this, you can get a trainer who can actually modify exercises for wherever you're at and get you started. But these kind of exercises are really critical to help maintain lean body mass and build lean body mass. And then when it comes to, you know, fasting and nutrition, there are some people that just really do well on one meal a day diet, but that doesn't mean it's for everybody. You know, that's a small sub subset mm-hmm. of the population. If you are doing resistance training, if you are exercising regularly, then it's probably going to be a little bit harder to do one meal a day. So I'm I'm more of a fan of two or even three meals, depending on how you handle, in a sense, a larger meal in a, let's say a six to eight hour eating window on a typical basis, you're doing two to three meals in that, in that time span. Again, like I talked about at getting at least 30 grams of protein, at least 20 to 30 or, or more grams of fat, depending on how well you metabolize and digest fat. Some people, if they don't have a gallbladder, they may need a little bit less fat in a meal mm-hmm. and they may need smaller meals, right? So you just kind of have to do it based on how you feel when you're eating but you're trying to get two to three meals a day. And then I'm a huge advocate of one day a week doing kind of a deeper autophagy fast where one day a week you do something like a 20 to 24 hour fast. You kind of push your system a little bit more. Now you're drinking water. You could drink herbal tea, black coffee if you want during that fast, but trying to just get it into that 20 to 24 hour range. So like a lunch to lunch fast. David, uh, let me ask. Uh, do you change your workout schedule? So yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. yeah. So for me, here's how I do it. On Wednesday, I don't work out, right? I might take a walk, but I don't do any sort of strength training. 
and I eat lunch and then I fast until lunch on Thursday. Now, for me, I've been doing this a while. And so from, I'm very metabolically flexible. So I'll actually work out before I break my fast on Thursday. So lunchtime on Thursday, I'm working out. I feel great. I don't even feel hungry. Um, and then I'll break my fast shortly after my workout on Thursday. So as you get better at this, your body becomes, you get more of these very, very metabolically flexible, stress-resilient mitochondria. And your body gets so thrifty and good. And I'm very low in body fat, but my body's just so good at burning the body fat that I do have because I'm metabolically flexible and I've trained it this way. Mm -hmm. But what I wouldn't recommend is working out in the beginning of like yeah. a 24 hour fast. That wouldn't be smart. It, when you work out, you're going to drive up cortisol. You're going to you're break down more blood sugar, which is then going to trigger some insulin. And that can end up causing more hunger and more cravings. So that isn't as advisable. Better to work out at the end of your fast. And really, if you're doing intermittent fasting in general, it's usually more advisable. Most people uh, just handle it better. They have less cravings if they work out kind of towards the end of their fast, closer to the, when they start eating. Although some people based on their schedule, and I, I used to do this you know, uh, in years past, the only time they have to work out is in the morning and then they wanna fast until 12, right? Or lunch or whatever it is. And mm -hmm. it just works better for their schedule. They can do that. Or you could do early, you know, if that doesn't work for you, but you have to work out in the morning uh, based on your schedule, then you can do early time-restricted feeding where, for example, you eat at, let's say, 8 a.m. and you eat at 2 p.m., right? And then you fast mm -hmm. through dinner after that. And if even if that doesn't work, I've still seen really good results when people just do like two meals, like a breakfast and a dinner, right? And just kind of fast through lunch. Um, as long as, again, they're eating a very blood sugar stabilizing breakfast, uh, I've seen people feel really good and bring down inflammation, you know, just by eating, let's say at 8 a.m. and and 6 p.m., right? And just mm -hmm. not eating in between. It's really the, the act of constantly grazing, right? Or the more times we're kind of putting food in our body, we're driving up inflammation. And when you eat two meals as opposed to four meals in a day, that actually reduces the overall insulin load by 25%, even if it's the same ingredients, right? It's just reducing the amount of times that you're eating. And uh, so you're going to create more insulin sensitivity that way, and which means you're going to burn fat for fuel. You're going to create more of those healthier mitochondria. Now, we talked a little bit about toxins. Uh, and I want to have you comment on what the role of toxin chemicals have to do with our um, our lives. I, I know that's in, in our food supply. We already mentioned that. But do you have uh, thoughts about toxins in other aspects of our life? Yeah, I mean, there's toxins everywhere. So, you know, there's toxins in our air, particularly this, you know, EPA says indoor air is significantly more toxic than the outdoor air. Most people think of air pollution, right, as the main issue. But inside of our house, we might have formaldehyde coming off of our furniture. We might have, you know, different toxins coming out of paint that if we recently painted, we might have mold in our home, right? And so we could have mycotoxins and mold coming out of the walls of our house. And so, um, you know, we're being exposed to toxins. There's no way around it. You're not going to get rid of all of them, but there are definitely things you can do to help reduce your toxic load. And I think that's really the idea is, Let's try to dilute or reduce the amount of toxins that we are being exposed to on a regular basis. And our body can handle a certain amount of toxins. Um, but the more stressed we are, the, the weaker our mitochondria are, the more sluggish our drainage and detoxification systems are, and the more infl inflammation primed our immune system is, the less toxins we're going to be able to handle. And, and um, without driving up more inflammation and creating a whole cascade of negative effects. 
And so, you know, in general, what do we want to do? We want to do our best to try to get organic foods. So that way we're not being exposed to pesticides, herbicides. Um, you know, if you can't find organic, you can look for non-GMO as well, which is key because that's, you know, some of the more damaging herbicides that are used are typically used on foods that are, are genetically modified in such a way that they're resistant to those. And uh, so that's key as well. So you're looking for that inside your house. You can get an air purifier. I like the air doctor. So I've got air doctors and for example, my office right here in different rooms in my house um, in the summertime or, you know, when the weather's nice, you can open up windows. All right. Which, you know, helps things off gas. If you have, if you're getting new furniture, try to let it sit you know, out, right. Or, or try to off gas it in general, right. If you get new furniture put in, it's a good time, you know, to go take a vacation or put it outside. If you have, you know, uh, a covering overhang kind of thing to let it just air out. Um, I think that's a really good idea. So we're trying to do our best to help reduce our exposure to these different Mm -hmm. types of toxins. And while, meanwhile, we're working on developing our, our body's own natural resilience, helping move these drainage pathways or helping support our liver. Um, you know, I always tell people you got to pee your way, pee and poop your way to good health, right? That's how, that's how <laughs> we get that. rid of these things. And so if we're drinking a glass of water every, every hour, right. While we're awake, other than you, know, maybe the hour before we go to bed, it's a really good idea. Um, people will say when they start following a healthy lifestyle, I'm sure you've probably gotten this Dr. Walls. A lot of my clients, they, they would say, you know, I, I feel a lot better, but I have a problem. I've got to go to the bathroom every hour, right? And I'm like, well, that's good. You got to pee and poop your way to, to good health, right? So Absolutely. you got to be moving your bowels, you know, really ideally twice a day, um, certainly at least once a day. Uh, you want to move out all the endotoxins and waste from the day before each day. And you should be urinating as well. And that's how we get rid of these toxins. If you are able to be in an environment where you can sweat, we talked about exercise, also things like infrared sauna or even traditional sauna, getting mm-hmm. out, you know, in the summertime, getting out in the sun. Uh, on a regular basis. Real, I mean, really all, all throughout the year, getting out in the sun is so powerful for your mitochondria and, and, and so good for your body, even if it's cold out, but getting sweat as well and getting more of your body exposed during the warmer months can be extremely powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Really great for your body, great for opening up your drainage pathways, um, yep. eliminating more toxins and improving mitochondrial function. Well, David, this, this has been uh, just so fabulous. Uh, there's so much great information uh, on inflammation, on blood sugar, and the things that we can do to lower inflammation and improve our blood sugar control. Uh, now, where can people come learn more about everything that you do? And uh, can people come work with you if uh, they would like to? Yeah. So my website is drjockers.com. You can find me on different social media. Just look up Dr. David Jockers, YouTube, podcast. Um, I personally don't work with clients anymore, but I do have a health coaching team that does. And so you just reach out. They're they're expert trained, uh, amazing. They work with people all, all around the, the world uh, virtually. And so you can reach out to us. Just look up coaching on drjockers.com. And uh, my podcast, uh, Dr. Jockers Functional Nutrition Podcast, very popular one. Uh, where we're talking about all these kinds of same things that we're talking about here in this uh, in this interview. So thanks so much for doing this summit and, and inviting me on as well, Dr. Wells. David, this has been uh, just wonderful. Um, I look forward to being able to see you at one of the next integrative functional medicine mm-hmm. uh, conferences that I attend. Sounds uh, much great. Love, much Sounds love great. to you and your family. Yes, you too. Thank you. 
Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.